Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, I, Serene Musselman, have the privilege of talking with our very own Dr. Lynn Kohick. Lynn received her PhD in New Testament and Christian origins from the University of Pennsylvania. She has taught throughout the U.S. and abroad in Nairobi, Kenya, and Sydney, Australia. She presently serves as Provost and Dean of Academic Affairs at Northern Seminary, where she teaches New Testament and is leading the development of a women's studies program. Her books include Christian Women in the Patristic World, which she co-authored with Amy B. Hughes, and Women in the World of the Earliest Christians. Well, Merry Christmas, Lynn. Merry Christmas, Serene. It's so fun to be here today. It's amazing. This is our 42nd episode. We've been doing this for 42 weeks together. Can you believe it? No, I can't. It has flown by and has been so much fun. It has. And Merry Christmas to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us on this journey for the last 42 weeks. And from what I hear, we need to give a special shout out to one of our listeners who has been with us since week one. Who is that, Lynn? Oh, it's my husband who is celebrating his birthday this week. He's a close to Christmas baby. So I want to give a shout out to Jim. And happy, happy birthday. birthday. Yeah. yeah. Happy birthday, Jim. Thanks for listening. So I'm sure he's listening right now. Um, you know, Lynn, as we head into this next year of the podcast, uh, I thought it would be helpful to revisit what our heart is for the alabaster jar. What's the vision? Why did we start this in the first place? So, um, yeah, what's your heart for the alabaster jar? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we talked about how we'd like to be a place of encouragement and hope for uh, women, women who are finding their voice, uh, celebrating uh, their voice. Uh, we, we like to talk with uh, women who are in ministry, who are working with scripture, who are thinking theologically about uh, the world, the church, who God is. And yeah, and, and to overall just be an encouragement um, and, and to, to live in the uh, joyful space uh, that, that God has called us to enjoy. I mean, has given us as a gift, our Christmas gift, um, that joyful life that we can have in Christ. Even when things aren't always happy around us, we can uh, rejoice deeply um, in Christ. So that, that's the hope of, of this podcast, that we would just encourage each other. Yeah, I love that. Why do you think that this podcast is important uh, for us in this season in the life of the church um, as followers of Jesus? You know, what is it that compelled you to start this podcast? Well, uh, as our listeners have probably recognized, we typically interview women. And the um, rationale behind that is we want to give space to voices that aren't typically heard. Uh, time and again, I have students or other women who have said to me, I just never knew that. Or, wow, I never saw that. Or someone would, would say to me, you know, my daughter or my friend uh, just was so blessed to read a commentary written by a woman, you know, and I, and, and so I think yeah, there's a lot going on. And, and I'd like to celebrate that. And Alabaster Jar gives us a space 
to do that, uh, for women to know there, there's lots going on. And, uh, and so join in the fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so exciting. Well, obviously we're celebrating Christmas this week and there is a lot to celebrate. Uh, and as you know, this is my first Christmas in the Chicagoland area. And you and I were chatting about memories and things to do. And Chicago has so many awesome things to do at Christmas time, but I was particularly interested in one unique experience that you had a few years ago, the Klingon Christmas Carol. I need to hear more about this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes. Well, as my family will attest, I love uh, the, the story, the Christmas Carol. And it's, it was a yearly tradition. The children uh, really, you know, grew tired of it, but every year we would watch A Christmas Carol or Scrooge, the musical. It was my favorite. I've already watched it this year. Um, but one year, a colleague of mine said, because they know that I love Star Trek, that my husband loves Star Trek, that we also raised our kids on Star Trek, that um, there was a Klingon Christmas Carol <laughs> being performed in some very small, not surprising, very small little playhouse somewhere in Chicagoland. I don't think I could find it again today uh, (laughs) where where that little place was, but I mean, it was, it was in Klingon. So since I am not super fluent in Klingon, I was grateful for the subtext that were, or the the subtitles that were um, flashed up on the um, back of the, of the, um, of the stage so that we were able, although I knew the story well enough when it's done in Klingon, there are a few twists and uh, yeah, we even have the photo of my husband. As I said, it's his birthday week. So this was part of his birthday uh, present him with the cast of Klingons. It's a treasured, it's a treasured moment. Uh, (laughs) That is a memory you will never forget. (laughs) (laughs) That is true for a variety of reasons. We will never, we will never forget that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that if you can master biblical Greek, you can certainly handle a production that's all in Klingon. You. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess so. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a, a favorite Star Trek character, someone that you've loved over the years? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know if I have a special character as much as I love the interplay between the characters. I think that's, that's what I would love, you know, Bones and the, uh, Dr. McCoy and Spock going after each other. I love the movies. Uh, We laugh at William Shatner, who I don't think took himself seriously. (laughs) And then Jean-Luc Picard, uh, Patrick Stewart, uh, liked, we, you know, we just, they became sort of our, um, uh, TV friends. <laughs> totally. So, yeah. oh, I love that. Well, we're going to be talking about a different sort of character today. We're talking about another character in the narrative of Christmas. We've spent a lot of time over these past couple of weeks talking about Mary, but we don't want to overlook Elizabeth. Uh, after Mary received this news from the angel Gabriel, she went and made a trip to visit Elizabeth. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time today uh, getting to know her character in the story of Christmas and why 
she's so important for us to not overlook. So Lynn, tell us a little bit about Elizabeth and what stands out to you as you uh, find her within the narrative of Christmas. Yeah, thank you, Serene. Yeah, I've, um, you know, when we talk about the um, Alabaster Jar podcast being an encouragement, I think of Elizabeth as an encourager. Um, and I'm, I'm reflecting on the first chapter of Luke's gospel, um, Elizabeth uh, is is the person that Mary visits after she hears from the angel Gabriel. I'm looking at uh, chapter one, verse 39, for those who are interested in, in taking a look. Um, Mary uh, travels to her, but Elizabeth's story starts earlier, and, and actually it's told through her husband. There's uh, uh, Zachariah, who is a priest, and also... Um, uh, Elizabeth is from a priestly family, and they're they're described as an upright and righteous couple, but also a couple that uh, do not have children. And one day, um, while uh, Zechariah is ministering in the temple, he receives uh, word from the angel, and and the angel promises an, an amazing promise. He says, "Your prayers have been answered," and and then he goes on to describe this baby that hit, that Elizabeth will have and the great work that this baby who's John the Baptist um what uh what this will mean for the people of Israel as John the Baptist prepares the way for the Messiah and as i was rereading this story recently uh it i, I was stunned at Zechariah's response which was of disbelief. It's like his brain stopped with the one of the first phrases of the angel, your wife will have a son. I mean, he'd been praying for it uh, for years. I think both of them had been praying for this for years and suddenly now it's going to happen, but he he just can't wrap his mind around it. He can't uh, believe it. And, and so it, uh, he challenges. He challenges the veracity of what the angel is saying. He's challenging the truthfulness of it. And one of the things he says, I kind of joke about this sometimes when I have taught this story, that <laughs> he says, how can this be? Because I'm old and my wife is old. And we know the punishment, Zechariah, is uh, unable to speak for nine, nine months. And I, I like to say it's because he called his wife old. I think there's a lesson here that yes. no husband <laughs> call his wife old. But anyway, but even deeper in that, right, the theological um, piece of this is his response is one of, th this just isn't possible. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, in contrast to Mary, who says, okay, t tell me how this is going to work itself out. I believe that it's going to happen. But since I'm I'm betrothed, but I haven't had my wedding night yet, I, I don't know, just, you know, fill me in a little bit on how, how this is, what the steps are <laughs> mm -hmm. to, uh, to get me to the end point that you're talking about. And uh, so I've, I, I wonder, getting back to Elizabeth here, I wonder when her husband came home, how he communicated to her this news. Obviously, everybody knew something had happened in the temple. He can't speak anymore. He can just talk in signs. Um, but soon enough, Elizabeth realizes this is the impact of, of the vision that he had, and she's with child. And the, and the angel had said, this child will be 
covered with the Holy Spirit will be um, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. That's in verse 15 of chapter one of the Gospel of Luke. And that's an important little piece because as we fast forward and Mary visits Elizabeth, her baby leaps in, in her womb. And it's a testimony of the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit plays such an important role, both in chapter one of Luke and also chapter one of Matthew. And, and so as Elizabeth hears Mary come into the room, um, the baby leaps in her womb. And, and Elizabeth calls out, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What incredible affirmation that Mary received from Elizabeth, an affirmation that the child she's carrying that was um, was created by the covering of the Holy Spirit upon her, that, that all of those things told to her by Gabriel are, are confirmed and celebrated by Elizabeth. Um, and, and so I just... You know, I think of Elizabeth being desiring a child for a long time, wishing for so many years that that she would have had the same life like Mary will have, having a child in her uh, in her younger age. Somehow, Elizabeth stayed very faithful, very committed to God's purposes. She did not become bitter, not become sour. Not, I mean, we, at least from what we can tell her response to Mary is so focused on Mary and so focused on what God is doing. Uh, and, you know, I think if, if I were in Elizabeth's shoes, maybe I would have said, Mary, can't wait to tell you my news. You know, yes. but Mary is so, uh, Elizabeth is so focused on Mary and so focused on this big picture of what God is doing and so excited to be a part of it, but recognizing I'm a part of it, you know, and God is blessing me, but it's, this blessing is a big thing. It's, it's much bigger than just allowing me um, the joy of, of having a son. So, yeah. So I, I just, I want to celebrate Elizabeth. Uh, I want to be like Elizabeth. I want to be so attuned to what God is doing in others and then be able to celebrate them. Yeah. Yeah, as you are retelling the story, there's a couple of things from Elizabeth's story that stand out to me, even in the context of what we're doing here on the Alabaster Jar. And one of those is that she provided a safe place, an encouraging place. You use the word affirmed, you know, she affirmed what God was doing in Mary's life. And I think that's really relevant for us today. Um, I, we can sometimes get scattered in the different areas of ministry that we get placed in and we can drift apart. And I've, I've found in my own journey, and maybe you could speak to this as well, that community is really important. It's hard to do this alone. Um, and so having someone in our life who can affirm us, who can encourage us, provide a safe space to land and to call out what they see God doing in our lives is a really valuable. I think God works through those voices um, to give us the, the strength or um, the wind under our wings, so to speak, to keep going. Do you agree with that, Lynn? Have you seen that in your own life? Oh, so often, so often. I uh, 
several different pictures of, of women throughout my life have uh, come to my mind uh, as I think of those who at the right moment have, um, have supported, have rejoiced, you know, have, have celebrated uh, with me. Uh, of course, they have also stood by uh, when things were not good. Um, yeah. And, I, and so I wish that even as we think of Barnabas as the son of encouragement and how he helped Paul, um, that men and women would look at Elizabeth as an uh, equally helpful example that not just women would think, oh, I'd love to be Elizabeth, but that men also, this is an opportunity for men to also look at Elizabeth's character and say, what, what can I learn from her response as she is herself, a, plays a crucial role in the coming of the Messiah, but focuses on the bigger picture. I think that's just a good word for, for any follower of Jesus, man or woman. Yeah, absolutely. And and we also see this element in the story of God making the impossible possible. And uh, there's something really powerful about that. I can think of so many times in my life where um, I couldn't see how all the pieces were going to come together. It seemed impossible and it could only the credit could only go to God and how it all came together. And I think that's why it's so important to return to these stories and to not skip over these passages because it's the the same reason that we share our own stories. We share testimonies with each other today. It reminds us of God's faithfulness and times in our life when God has made the impossible possible. Um, and I think that's a huge encouragement. Uh, so thank you for sharing Elizabeth's story. But it doesn't end there, right? Uh, we were sharing, um, even as we uh, go into the early church in those first couple of centuries, uh, the stories of women who are living out their faith, um, even in the years after Jesus's death and resurrection, and as the church is finding its place in the world, we see women there as well, including stories of women who are mothers, much like Mary and Elizabeth's story. And so tell me a little bit about some of these women that you have studied in the early church. Right, right. Well, the early church um, is sometimes called the age of the martyrs, those first couple of centuries till we get to Constantine, where Christianity was no longer outlawed. So that's, you know, in the early 300s. Mm -hmm. um, so prior to that, um, the, it's called the age of the martyrs. I don't think there were too many martyrs. I mean, we should be clear about that. It wasn't like every third Christian was martyred. Mm -hmm. But the martyrs formed the identity of the church. So though, although they were not great in number, they certainly had an oversized impact in how the church understood itself. I mean, Jesus's words, take up your cross and follow me, was uh, was taken very seriously and literally as, a, as this call to come and die for the sake of Christ. And, and so uh, Christians who stood up against the uh, imperial cult and uh, the wider pagan world that required sacrifices to the emperor, typically, but the emperor as seen as one of um, the gods and goddesses. Um, it was kind of a, a combination of deity, but also a political, a, a claim of political alliance as well, uh, and, and an embracing of the ideals of the uh, Roman Empire that very different from 
Christ's own uh, kingdom. So I think especially of two mothers in uh, a story called Perpetua and Felicitas. And people can get this, they can Google this, right? And you can get the story on Google if you just type in Perpetua and Felicitas. And it's based on a diary uh, that many people, including myself, believe was written by a woman. So it's one of the earliest writings of women that we have preserved, Perpetua. I mean, it. there's an editor that also uh, works on it because the story tells of her martyrdom. And obviously, <laughs> she's she won't write that herself. Yes. <laughs> Someone else is writing that for her. But... Mm-hmm. But it, Perpetua is a young woman uh, who's um, a mother. Uh, we don't hear about her husband directly in the story. Uh, he may have been martyred also with her um, or er- a bit earlier, um, but it, it's unclear. So she writes this diary. And one of, one of the uh, interesting things about her story is, for our purposes here, is how she talks about her son who for us, we'd call him a toddler, but he's still nursing because they would wean their children like around two, maybe in the second or before they turned three. So um, uh, we don't want to think of a wee little infant here, um, but nevertheless uh, she's still nursing the child and she is put in prison. She's asked to, celebrate the emperor's birthday by offering a sacrifice in his name. And she refuses. And she says to her father, who is greatly upset at this, she says, you know, father, I'm, I'm a Christian. That that's who I am. I am a Christian. It's a phrase that we find on the lips of, of many of the martyrs. I am a Christian, that testimony. And with that claim, I am a Christian. She's thrown in prison and uh, and so she talks about how um, she fears for her son while she's in there. At times her mother and one of her brothers watches over the boy. Then they bring the boy back to her at one point. Then yeah, it, it, it's not always clear what what is going on with this young boy. But at one very poignant moment, he's with her father, and her father kind of holds him up and says. For the sake of your son, recant and offer the sacrifice. And it's a it's just a horrible choice that is presented to her. And she does not recant her faith. And she entrusts her son uh, to her father, who will take care of him, of course. I mean, he values the son very much. Um, and also to her mother and brother. Um, so the son's not abandoned uh, as an orphan, but she does. She faces and, and it's expressed in her in her diary, just the pain um, and the and, and the wrestling with what does God have for me to do? And one of the things that that she also describes are these four visions that she has. And it's in those visions that she gains clarity for herself. And she's the leader of this group of men and women who will be going into the arena. And these visions serve not just to support her, but to also support the others who recognize the Lord is is calling them to give their lives uh, for the sake of Christ. And um, 
And so it's just a very poignant story. It's a very, it's a very hard story uh, to read. Um, yeah. And in fact, you and I uh, read this story a couple of months ago um, uh, together for a class at Northern Women uh, in the Early Church. I know you reflected on that story as well. What are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, when I took that class with you, one of the things that struck me is how few of these stories I had ever heard before. And uh, I think that's why it's important to tell them in these spaces. And I was struck by mixed emotions. Uh, there was uh, It was bittersweet in a way. I mean, first of all, obviously, these stories are, are heartbreaking and tragic. Uh, what these women experienced uh, specifically in this story of Perpetua and Felicitas, these two young mothers um, being separated from their their babies, their children, and enduring what they endured in the arena. It's heartbreaking. It's also bittersweet because uh, they have they set such an example for us. Uh, um, they laid the framework in many ways for us of, of our faith and what it means to live out our faith uh, in the world. And so there's a bittersweet nature there as well of um, that we don't always hear their stories uh, specifically in their their story. I think that there's something that we can find there in the sense that their social class was very different. Um, one was a highborn and the other was a slave. And yet uh, their faith crossed that line. Um, they both were willing to make sacrifices even to their their death uh, for what they believed, for their faith, um, both giving up different things and, and it meant different things for their lives. Um, but their wanna, faith, yeah. Yeah, just to talk a little bit about uh, Felicitas, um, which is that slave woman um, that that you're mentioning in her, in her story, yeah. Mm-hmm. The um, it's it's incredibly uh, poignant how um, she wants to have her uh, child before they all go into the arena. And so she goes into labor uh, before that. And um, uh, as as she is undergoing uh, labor, she's being mocked by the by the guard who is talking about the uh blood that you know is a part of the of the birthing process um and the blood that she will also shed in the arena and um and how i mean he just mocks he just mocks her with that um but she is she turns all that around and she says, the suffering that I'm experiencing now in birthing what ends up to be her daughter, in that same way, she uses it as a beautiful metaphor for her own birth, her own second birth, if you will, as uh, she dies in the arena. The uh, ancient Christians would talk about uh, the martyrs as having a second birthday mm. uh, when they uh, died in the arena, that that was their birthday uh, of new life uh, in, in the resurrection. And so Felicitas is, is thinking both about what's going to happen in the arena and thinking theologically about her giving birth and the Lord Jesus giving birth to her in her new life. It's, it's a very powerful story. 
Absolutely. Well, and here at Christmas, we, this is sort of a heavy topic for a Christmas episode, but there is an element of this that even as we celebrate Jesus's birth, there is a recognition that he was also born to die. His, he, his incarnation taking on flesh and blood, living among us as a human ultimately led to his death. And so there's, there is this dual nature to what it means to celebrate Jesus's birth. And I think that's interesting what you pulled in there of the martyrs and their second birthday. And the martyrs really gave us a, a very poignant picture of what it means to embody our faith in a way that maybe here in, um, Western society today, we don't always see that in our culture of what it means to embody our faith. Um, but they, these women, they they demonstrated courage and they helped us see this picture of Christ's strength made perfect in our weakness and what it means to uh, embody our faith in a culture that may even be hostile to what we believe. Uh, what do you have to say um, to that, Lynn, just in light of the incarnation? What does this mean for us at Christmas? Yeah, no, I think the um, what what you're talking about there with with just the faithfulness of of what what we see in the in in Mary and Elizabeth sometimes i can feel like well but they're bible women right <laughs> they're you know and uh they're supposed to have complicated lives and they're supposed to come out you know uh good at the end mm-hmm. um, but then when we start looking when i look at my own life or or friends or you know i just think about my world I'm like oh that that you know it's just so complicated but we can look at the early church uh, and see the the examples of women, mothers like Mary and Elizabeth, uh, mothers who are part of God's working in the world. These martyrs like Perpetua and Felicitas, they, they knew themselves to be testifying to something really much bigger than themselves. And, and that bigness, I think, um, that we see in Elizabeth and Mary embracing the bigness of God's plan. Um, and then we see in Elizabeth, uh, I'm sorry, and we see in uh, Perpetua and Felicitas is something I, I hope to emulate, to, to not get uh, so rooted down in the particulars of my own work, work week or nine to five or particular friends or family drama or that kind of thing, which can kind of narrow my vision, but to, to continue to think about the greatness of God's overall work in the world and continue to be alert to what part of that at any given time I'm being asked to play in that. And I think these martyr stories remind us of the importance that women had in in testifying to the greatness of God's plan, even as Elizabeth and Mary testify to that same thing. Yes, absolutely. And not just mothers, although those are the stories that we're focusing on, but women in all women. And we even see in some of these stories of these uh, early martyrs, women being described as the image of Christ being seen in them. And what a powerful reminder for us uh, that we are image bearers. 
And we may embody our faith in a way that looks a little different than the martyrs of the early church did, but we still, all the same, are called to embody our faith in the world. Uh, And so as we wrap up this conversation today, we began with this vision for the alabaster jar and our hope that this would be a place of encouragement and of hope and empowerment. Uh, And so what message would you leave us with of what um, the story of the martyrs uh, or even the stories of Mary and Elizabeth, what hope does that give us for today, Lynn? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, maybe the, the best way to kind of, well, and you said the word, I think what it does is it, it gives us hope. Um, Jesus has gone before us and he has ascended and he is even now in his raised and glorified body interceding on our behalf, Hmm. but he will return. And so the final chapter of everything has not been written. He will return uh, and he will clothe, clothe us with immortality. We will have a raised and glorified body that shares his life because he is life. And that hope sustained the martyrs very much. Um, it You can see it expressed in Elizabeth and in Mary's voices as they proclaim what God is doing. And it's something that's that we are able to do today as well, to express that hope, that sure and confident hope um, that uh, the Lord is is returning and returning to his own. And the, the, we want to be um, praising him um, when, when he comes. And so I, I think that that's the hope of the alabaster jar, that it would give women encouragement and men, men are listening to uh, both uh, encouragement and hope as we wait the return of our Savior. Mm, and that is good news. That, that is the good news. So listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening along with us for these past 42 weeks. Lynn and I are so grateful for each and every one of you. May you have a Merry Christmas and go forward with the hope of Jesus' life within you. Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you would like to learn more about our conversation's topic, check out the episode description for links to some of Lynn's work on women in the early church. Be sure to subscribe so that you will be reminded to join us back here next week for our first episode of the new year.